the mountains show us who we are and you know all of the great points of our possibilities and potential and the, the, the things that can we can celebrate and along with those are all of the opportunities for development and and that's the piece that adventure shows us quite strongly the mountains and and being in kind of challenging environments and so being open to those pieces to me i think is fundamentally why adventuring is is so important because it shows us in no uncertain terms <laughs> if if we're willing to kind of allow that in and and part of allowing it in is 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 sharing it and you know i think that we can do this work alone but when we share it actually it it actually becomes real this is ken wiley and you're listening to the avalanche hour podcast you are tuned into another episode and another season of the avalanche hour podcast your source for great conversations within the snow and avalanche community. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by VEASAN Avalanche Control, safety through innovation, with additional support from InterWest Insurance. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people with a curious fascination of avalanches. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. I'm excited you're here. I appreciate your support and your continued listenership of the Avalanche Hour podcast. We're excited for the upcoming season. We have some of the same guest hosts back for another round um, and perhaps a couple more as well. Um, Things are continuing to grow with the podcast and we couldn't do it without you. So we appreciate you. I'm sure you're just as excited as I am about the upcoming winter season. What are you doing to get ready for the winter season of backcountry travel? Some things that come to mind for me and maybe could serve as decent reminders are making sure to look through your equipment. You know, this is a great time, even before there's snow on the ground, to look at your shovel, your probe, your transceiver, your airbag, making sure that you hopefully put it away correctly Um, but just look for areas of wear and tear see if you need any new gear hopefully continuing your avalanche education is on your list of things to do this winter whether it's going to regional snow and avalanche workshops or the international snow science workshop um, that's taking place in bend in just a couple weeks or perhaps it's just signing up for a rescue course or continuing your education through the recreational track by signing up for a level two rec course if you've already taken a level one, or maybe you're venturing into the professional side of avalanche education. Whatever your plan may be, make a plan to continue your avalanche education. And we hope that uh, these podcast episodes are integral into your lifelong learning to become a better risk manager and a better backcountry traveler. Like I said, the International Snow Science Workshop will be taking place in Bend, Oregon from October 8th through the 13th, and I hope to meet many of you there. 
October is also when we can expect to see the first installment of the Avalanche Review. Of course, the publication of the American Avalanche Association, and it should be landing in our mailboxes soon. A subscription to the Avalanche Review is part of a membership to the American Avalanche Association, or the A3 as we like to call it. And there's tons of other benefits from becoming an A3 member as well. Things like access to more than $20,000 in scholarships and research grants, pro deals and discounts, access to the Avalanche Resilience Program, which includes individual and group grants for mental health support and resilience training, as well as up-to-date pro-employment listings delivered to your inbox weekly, and you can access those on the A3 website as well. Uh, There's also free annual webinars specifically geared towards professional development within the industry. Uh, the, The A3 does so much for the industry within the United States, and I can't thank them enough for for their support. Um, So if you are already a member, make sure to renew your membership. And if you're not a member of the A3, consider membership today. You can find out more at www.americanavalancheassociation.org. Today, I'm excited to share a great conversation I had recently with Ken Wiley. Ken is a lifelong adventurer and IFMGA guide who lives on Vancouver Island in Canada. In January of 2003, Ken was the assistant guide at Selkirk Mountain Experience and was involved in a tragic avalanche accident that took the lives of seven guests and left Ken buried for about 40 minutes. Not many people can begin to understand what the years to follow an event like this could do to a person, but maybe we should try to learn from Ken about what he has learned. Ken took a deep dive into reflecting about his role in the decision-making train that led to this accident. He ultimately wrote a book titled Buried that recounts some of the events of this accident, as well as his path to healing from the accident. Ken shares some details about his process of integrating this event into his life and lays out some steps for all of us to become more resilient to the rigors of making significant decisions in the backcountry and beyond. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Ken. Welcome to the show, Ken. How are you doing today? Oh, good. It's a beautiful day here on Vancouver Island. Um, we're fortunate to not have smoke um, like so many places in Western Western North America. Yeah. Well, you're one of the few lucky ones. We're, we're in the thick of it here in the Rogue Valley right now. We're recording this on Saturday, August 26th. And um, Ken, I'm, I'm delighted that you're here on the show today. I first heard about you and, and uh, your story maybe six or seven years ago when I picked up your book, Buried, um, which recounts your perspective of a tragic avalanche that happened a little bit over 20 years ago on January 20th, 2003. Um, and I was, I couldn't put it down. It, it hit home with me and, and I felt like I could on some level relate. Um, but of course, nobody can actually relate to some of the things that 
that um, you've gone through following this tragedy. And we're here today, I think, to talk a little bit about the process of healing uh, from something like that and moving forward. But first, I'd like to just hear who Ken Wiley is. It's a bit of an open-ended question, and you can choose to answer that however you'd like. Yeah, um, yeah. Defining oneself—that's that's always a challenge. Um, yeah, it's it's a challenge because um, the things that we might define ourselves um, by are often changing and and morphing and. And, um, and so I guess, I guess I would probably say that I'm a person who has been an adventurer and a person who has found, um, that adventure has been my greatest teacher and, and, and all of it, um, like the good, the bad, the ugly, it has helped shape me, um, into, a, um, hopefully a better person. And, um, and that process has been really important to me. Um, yeah, I remember being, um, um, a small child growing up in the Western part of Calgary, looking out to the West and just feeling, um, feeling a, a call to the mountains, the Rocky Canadian Rocky Mountains that were west of Calgary, um, similar to just being thirsty, um, yeah, wanting to be out in in that landscape was incredibly important, and and not something that I had much of a choice about. It was it was a strong pull. And, and, um, and I was really fortunate. I was incredibly fortunate to, to have such clarity and, and many people don't have that clarity in their lives, but I knew that, that this is the thing that I needed to engage with for, for better or worse. And, and it's, it, um, it's been my greatest teacher for sure. And so some of your early memories of, of spending time in the mountains, um, I recall from your book, you know, just starting to, to ski in the Canadian Rockies, maybe with a school group. Is that right? Like you, you were kind of introduced to skiing that way? Yeah, it was a school group. Um, but before that, my brother gave a gift of a day in the mountains, uh, Nordic skiing in Banff. And, and it was a pure kind of misery stick experience it was like wooden nordic skis and kick wax and we were going up a summer trail um to the ink pots in banff national park and what's interesting is that you know that whole experience if you take that context he was 17 and he was taking his younger brother and sister out into the mountains and i was seven and my sister was nine and what a what a thing for my mother to let a 17-year-old take a 7-year-old and a 9-year-old out into the mountains on a day that it was minus 20. My mom 
truly was an adventurer. And I think that her adventure was having seven kids, but, um, but also I think she got it. She understood the importance of, of that process of, of going out to wild places and, and engaging and, you know, she packed our lunches and sent us off on our way. And what a, what a, what a trusting soul she was. <laughs> and we had a great day, like an incredible day. Ken, when did you start your career to become a mountain guide? And what were some motivations behind starting down that path? Interestingly, I think that there was a few things. One, one thing was, you know, kind of my journey of skiing and, and, you know, that, that passion, um, kind of fueling that direction. And the pure definition of mountain guide is, is, is an interesting one. I think that, I think that it started when I was working at a, at a YMCA camp in 1983. And that's when I was, was leading other human beings in in wild places and what a humbling journey that was and again you know in those days we had a a a long leash we were able to take you know youth into places that you know we were not following trails we were going up canyons that didn't have a trail and and that was a really powerful experience and then you know that led to a career at at outward bound uh, in the United States, which was at that time was the Pacific Crest Outward Bound School, and it was operating in Washington, Oregon, and California. And so, my apprenticeship in the mountains was was a really, really kind of long, and it included being a leader. And then, by the time you know I hit my thirties, I had had already had a career in in post secondary education at a you know at an institution in Calgary teaching outdoor pursuits. But then realized that, well, if I, I really want to do this, I need to also kind of, I need to get this certification. And so I, in my 30s, I started down the path of being um, certified, becoming certified as a guide. And, um, and, and I think that the motivation for that was I could see the doors closing. Um, you know, I, I, want, I was most passionate about adventure education but in order to do that freely and openly, I, I needed to become certified. Um, and, and so I, I started down the path of, of becoming a, um, a mountain guide and finished that process eventually um, and, and became certified as an IFMGA guide. We're constantly learning from ourselves and from other people especially in the mountains. Um, who were some influential people or mentors you had in, in your career? And why did these people leave a mark on you? What were some of their qualities? Why were you drawn to them? Probably the most important mem- uh, mentor in my life was a, a man by the name of Bill March. And I, I, I did a degree in, at the University of Calgary kind of in this whole long journey of mine. And Bill was somebody who who really believed that we're short of leaders in our society. 
and and really short of leaders that make decisions and are accountable for their decisions. And and that that phrase was a mantra of his. And he really embodied the and and taught that this this process of adventure is about that is is learning to become good leaders who are accountable for the decisions that we make and and that that has echoed through my life and i i owe him a debt of gratitude for that um and and he was human right like he and but he was also one of the few people in in as i was an apprentice that would underline when he made a mistake and he was transparent like he would always debrief debrief with us at the end of the day and he would always bring up you know this is where i screwed up today and and really matter of fact and 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 really sincere about and i'm going to get better at this and so that was an incredible mentorship it couldn't have been better unfortunately um while i was at the university he he passed away he was young he was 47 um and he died of a a brain aneurysm um just as i was entering my last year of university and so that was that was also really kind of an important piece because it taught me about how fragile we are um here we here this big strong guy was you know at the prime of life was just kind of was just taken from us and and there was a, a real powerful lesson about fragility um that he in his passing and in, in his death passed on to us which i think was you know kind of in some ways his final message so let's talk a little bit about the the winter of 2003 and and as we start to talk about the events of la traviata you know feel free to talk as much or as little as you want about this and and um for the listeners if you're if you're wanting to hear more you know i can't recommend ken's book enough um and so i would i would kind of point you to that if there are aspects of this conversation that you're wanting to know more about um but Tell me, tell me what you were doing, kind of late fall into the early winter, in uh, in two thousand two, entering into the new year of two thousand three. Yeah, I, th- I think that the the story of La Traviata for me starts with a phone call that I got um, as as a job offer to work up at uh, Selkirk Mountain Experience, and and that that moment is important in in the story for. Uh, in in my journey of of La Traviata, in that when I was say, found myself saying yes on the phone to going to work up at Selkirk Mountain Experience, um, my intuition was saying no, don't do this. And so the the months leading up to going up to work there were really difficult. Um, it was this battle. And that battle taught me something important. It taught me about intuition versus intellectualizing. And and I intellectualized my way um, all the way through. 
And so my my intellect was telling me this will be good for you. And ultimately it has. I mean, unfortunate, but pr- profoundly unfortunate, but also it it was it was a rite rite of passage for me. Um but um yeah, my gut was I was just being tortured about going to work there. And I asked all my friends, you know, should I go work there? And they all said no. <laughs> and but I I found myself on this treadmill of I have to do this. And and it wasn't true. It wasn't true at all. I I I chose to imprison myself in in this choice. And um and so that you know the fall we had early snow and then in early November it rained and then it got really cold after the rain so we had this really bulletproof crust that everyone was worried about i was having conversations with other guides and in revelstoke and 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 so that kind of fueled the nervousness about about you know the trajectory that i was on with my work and you know the long story short is that you know what's interesting about la traviata is that it's an archetype of of what not to do right it's it's a perfect ar- archetype that i see repeating itself kind of in the the guiding industry where we've got these challenges with the snowpack and yet we've got these we've got you know kind of a business to operate and also the archetype of of getting too comfortable with the terrain i mean the the um the Durand glacier and and you know kind of the selkirks in general i mean it's big terrain and it's and it's not terrain that that lends itself well to difficulties in the snowpack like you you've got to have a good really solid snowpack um to to ride some of the lines there and and so um you know long story short we were 21 people all on one slope um at the same time when the avalanche danger was considerable with this november rain crust which you know it was november and then it got buried by december snow and all of january snow or most of january snow so you know and they the the challenge was is it was a deep instability and and of course those deep instabilities we now know um can be triggered from kind of ridge line where where they're not buried so deeply and that was the scenario with la traviata it was too many people on the slope spread out people arriving up up at the ridge some people still on the slope and we we got nailed big time and so 13 people were caught and and seven fatalities and and you were buried for over half an hour yeah you know in the first writing of of the book buried i i articulate that i was buried for half an hour but then after i published the book i went down to truckee and i was talking to the people who dug me out and they said oh you can you're under for 45 minutes or more and and so you know i feel fortunate you know i shouldn't have survived um but i did and but i also you know for a long time caleb i felt unfortunate 
um, yeah, there's this, this thing that in the medical profession they call second or, um, second victim syndrome. And, and it's, it's, it relates to this idea that, you know, when a doctor or nurse makes an error that's, that's, you know, fatally injures their patient, they become a victim. They become a victim of the choices that they've made. And, and it was really an interesting thing to have my friends and family all happy that I survived. And, and I didn't feel that way for a long time. Um, and, and the reality of being dug out and, and, and then knowing that we made decisions that cost seven people their lives, that was, that was really difficult. And, and, and what's really interesting, Caleb, is in these stories that we tell, um, we, we skim the surface of how it all really feels, right? Um, you know, the reality of La Traviata was that Craig Kelly lost his life and his wife, Savina, lost her husband. Um, that Ni- Naomi Heffler's parents lost their daughter. That Lon- Jean-Luc Swendener, who, who only had an uh, 80-year-old father left as family, but Lizbeth Cranabitter, who he worked for in the Canadian Rockies as a chef, you know, she, she lost somebody really important to her. Um, Dave Finity lost, um, was lost and his fiance Karina, you know, was just completely devastated and heartbroken. Dennis Yates, um, his wife, Carol, um, you know, she described him as, you know, he was totally the love of my life. You know, and Kathy Kessler, um, her husband, Scott, right? Like, just devastated. And, you know, their family launched an investigation. Um, you know, Annie, Annie Palucha, Kathy's sister, and her husband, Peter, you know, spent a lot of money to kind of engage Dick Penniman in, in a search for answers. And, and of course, and then there's Vern Lunsford, who was married and had a 16-year-old daughter at the time who, you know what, on year 20, um, on the anniversary of her father's death, she's now 36, she went looking for, um, does this industry remember my father? And the only place that she found a, an image and, and a honoring of her father was on my, on my Facebook page. And so, you know, there's, there's these holes that are left in people's lives that I think, I think that we, we don't hardly ever talk about that. And, but it's, it's really important to talk about, because I think that what happens is that in not talking about these people that are really important, that have, you know, life changing events by losing a loved one, you know, if we bring those ideas or you know those realities into our decision making processes 
we'll make better decisions. And and I I I really believe in my heart of hearts that that piece is is so important. How how we manage things afterwards, we're we're only just beginning to recognize that that we're dropping the ball um, for all these people that have this hole in their lives. Integration is is a word that I think is in, is really important in kind of moving forward when when dealing with with tragedy. And I think that it's 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 the big adventure. It's it's the invitation for the biggest adventure possible. Um, how do we integrate, you know, something so terrible? And and I and I think that that's that's a really important piece. And I and I watched it happen. I watched it happen with a tragedy that that occurred, you know, kind of ten or eleven days after La Traviata on February first, two thousand and three. There were seven kids killed at, in Connaught Creek at Rogers Pass, and and there was a couple of parents, notably um, Judith and Peter Arado, who who didn't stand down they they really kind of were champions for change and and that that event really made um there was really important changes that happened and those those kids are remembered not only at the school um but but in the industry and i think that that's 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 a a beacon of hope in in how we can you know kind of integrate these tragic events and and you know from that and we know we know the story we know the story of the you know avalanche terrain exposure scale the eighth scale and and we know that it's linked to that tragedy and so so there's there's been this kind of community integration that has happened because of that that event and that's the most beautiful thing that we could possibly do is is get better at what we do from from these events and and i see the the response to the strathcona tweedsmere tragedy as being a model it's it's a total model for um how we can respond to to things like this and and i and i and i think that that's 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 the work that's that the guiding industry is you know the invitation for the guiding industry is to kind of embody that that work um to to make things beyond you know statistics and and really kind of really know what we've learned from from different um you know catastrophes when they happen we go into the mountains to perhaps learn more about ourselves and maybe one of the best teachers of that is stepping up to that line right we we want to feel alive and in order to do so some some of us take take risk and so in doing so we we ultimately 
in a guiding scenario, we're putting others at risk. And hopefully they have a good idea of the risks that are involved and inherent in some of these activities. But what I'm hearing you say is that in order to take those head on in a present way, we kind of need to be really good humans. And it seems like through your process of processing the events that you've been through, you've become more resilient. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah, and 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 courageous, you know, and I and I wouldn't say that it was, you know, kind of me that was the driver. I I felt this this is kind of traversing into a, you know kind of the spiritual realm in some respects but i certainly felt like i was being guided right like i that that ultimately i didn't really have much of a choice like i sat down reticently to to write buried um but you know fundamentally what was happening in my life is that i was you know this was 5 or 6 years after la traviata happened and i'm finally recognizing that okay, I, I need to write. And, and that process was, was incredibly important. And, and what it underlines for me is that, you know, I think that the history of adventuring is, you know, kind of the, the recent history, kind of from 1940s and 50s, you know, in North America, it was, it was an escape from society. And, and, and in some ways an escape from ourselves and, es- and an escape of, from the process of, you know, kind of adulting, um, you know, kind of the verb adulting. Um, but, but I think that adventure is, is more important than that. It's more important than kind of rendering an escape from kind of this society that we've found to be oppressive. I think that adventure is is probably one of the most important things we can be doing if if we allow it to tra- transform us in some way and through that transformation we mature and through that maturity we make better decisions and so you know my call out for myself and and for you know kind of people who travel in hazardous environments, you know, my call out is, is keep doing that. It's really important. It's really important that we go to hazardous environments and that we make decisions, but it's all, but parallel with that is the human journey where we elevate ourselves, do the hard work of elevating ourselves. Um, and, and here's the reason. The reason is, is that, if we if we fail to kind of embrace that journey the journey will show up and it and it and it won't show up in a way that's easier it'll show up in a way that's harder and what i what i what i really respect is is the people that don't have to do go through what ken wiley went through to wake up um they go through it by recognizing that, wow, you know, I really love this thing of adventure, and I really love that it it presents me with challenges that um, 
that I have an opportunity to engage with myself more in, in, in important ways so that I elevate how I show up to situations. You know, I was listening to um, your podcast with Anna Keeling. Your podcast with Anna Keeling is really important because she's describing what I'm talking about. She's describing, you know, allowing herself to to grow and change and and to you know kind of embrace embrace the the challenges. And she's speaking about it, you know about her values and and i think that there's something really really important in that you know one of one of the one of the people that i i find really inspiring um he's he's gone now but there's this drummer by the name, name of neil pert and he was a drummer from rush and and what's really fascinating about neil pert was that he was at the peak of his career most people were calling him the best drummer in the world. And he decided to go back to school. And he, he connected with a, a drumming mentor of his. And he deconstructed, he took the risk of deconstructing everything about his drumming. And, and the mindset he had was, my drumstick hits the drum. And that's, that's my process. And he changed everything about his drumming when he realized what's most important is my, the pattern of my arms through the air. And I want the most efficient pattern of my arms through the air. And, and my call out to the adventure industry is we have to deconstruct. Like we're, there's great things that have happened in the, you know, kind of in the guiding community there's incredible things, right? Like we've learned so much about not like all of the technical applications and the technical knowledge of, you know, what we know about avalanches. That's all really beautiful stuff. But the deconstruction needs to happen about ourselves and what do we value? And, and, I, and, I, and, and, and that's critically important. Because I think that we need to shift from we celebrate our successes and we we kind of move on from our failures. We move, need to move from that paradigm to we celebrate our successes and we nurture our failures so that we can wring every lesson out of them as possible and we make them transparent and we own them. and And we're not afraid to talk about them. And, and we recognize that we need to do this work in community. You know, Caleb, one of the things that I recognize is that the survivors of an avalanche, they're, they're akin to somebody being in a lifeboat. And if you're in a lifeboat in the ocean, say the Pacific Ocean, what happens? Well, the sharks start circling and 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 it it kind of renders this whole experience as being really kind of there's an ampli amplification of of wow you know this is a really severe situation and 
and you know my experience of surviving an avalanche um was just like that and and what instead what i and i'll leave it up to your listeners to to kind of identify who who the sharks are um but what i needed and i think what everybody needed was community we needed to get to all all the stakeholders to get together and 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 we needed to be transparent and we needed to 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 say the things that needed to be said like we needed the maturity to to say yeah you know we screwed up we we kind of we let things get a, get ahead of ourselves or we were behaving in a way that wasn't appropriate for the terrain and the conditions. And that's all. That's all that needed to be said. And, and, and that's the future that I see for the guiding industry, where our, our chief concern is for everyone involved. And it's our chief concern is not about our businesses it's not about it's not about you know our reputations because all of that will heal if we go into the thing that scares us most and that thing is being accountable and and i i, I got to tell you it's it's where freedom resides it's it's like the most beautiful gift that we could possibly give ourselves. My experience in Truckee, California, after I wrote Buried, I went down there. And it is the most beautiful experience of my entire life. And here's why. I got up there. It was really kind of interesting. I... I I I connected with a bookstore and, and and it was really kind of I was shooting from the hip and I went down there I connected with a bookstore and we were pushing bookshelves to the side and you know I kind of thought well you know I'm going to do this book reading and I'll give a presentation about what happened at La Traviata and there'll probably be 20 maybe 30 people Caleb it was packed and there were people in you know on the sidewalk outside the building and they were so respectful and in the front row, Kathy Kessler died in my group. Um, and in the front row um, was Madeline, her mom, and Annie, her sister, and Janice, her sister, and her brother, I think his name's David, and, and her widower, Scott. And they taught me about grace. They were so graceful. I was showing slides of the avalanche site, the debris, the depths of burial. And Kathy's 90-year-old mom, in, in the pin drop silence, she breaks the silence by saying, this is so interesting. They waited 12 years to hear exactly how Kathy died. They wanted to know what the decision-making process was. And, and I was there telling them that I made a mistake. I knew it was a bad place to go, but I, I bought into the pressures of guiding 
and getting people their goods, among a bunch of other things. And Kathy paid the price, and they paid the price. And you know what? That's all they wanted to hear. They didn't judge me. They could see themselves making the same mistake. And, and I think that's the place that we need to get to. And I'm hearing that on your podcast, which is a really beautiful thing that you're doing, is that you're inviting people to put, them, put themselves in the shoes of the person or the people that made the decisions that were, that were catastrophic. And, and when we're mature enough to do that, Then, then, then we leap forward. We all leap forward because then we can harvest the lessons and we can, we can, we can make this adventure thing something really valuable for our society. Ken, you found some, or helped to develop some, some steps, a bit of a roadmap for some of this development, it seems like. And, um, I'm sure there's many other ways to say it, maybe a process of healing process of reflection um but i believe you call it the human hazard management model i was hoping you could describe that a little bit more to to us yeah that's that's right that's correct um caleb after i finished writing buried i i I realized that i had a process that was worthy of sharing and and the process isn't easy, but I, I think that what it does, I mean, for me, it was post-incident. It was, it was answering the question, what do I do with this? You know, most of what I experienced from the community was get past it. But fundamentally, this is a really, these experiences are really powerful. And so there's no getting past them. Um, and the, the, the paths, you know, kind of presented to me were, you know, get past it, forget about it, move on. But for me, there was no moving on. There was only kind of, how do I integrate this? And I tried kind of doing that and it didn't work. It ended up with me being, getting really sick. And the the other well-trodden path was kind of engaging in alcohol or drugs and, and, and or suicide. And all of those things are realities for people who are guides, who experience, you know, a loss of a client um, in a fatal involvement. Those are, those are kind of well-trodden pathways, but they didn't resonate for me. And, and so the invitation is, is that there's something, there's something different. And, and I'll, I'll speak about kind of two, there's eight, there's eight steps. And, and there's there's two steps that I that I'd like to share because um, they're the first two steps. The first step is is um, moving from denial to acceptance. Like when I was dug out from the avalanche, I couldn't believe that I couldn't believe it, and I didn't want to believe it, and. And the problem with, with, you know, kind of being, you know, I was stuck in the denial for a really long time. And the problem with being stuck in denial is that there's an energy that, that is required 
to kind of hold up these walls and and in holding up these walls it's it's kind of exhausting the metaphor that i've used is it's kind of like carrying a backpack full of rocks um it's not sustainable um but if you actually turn you you're going to carry it but if you turn the rocks into useful items so when we fill our backpack with a tent and a sleeping bag and food and fuel it's actually since they're useful items they're easier to carry and so the the process of shifting from denial to acceptance and and acceptance the key piece is acceptance of a responsibility i was the assistant guide so by you know kind of you know social structural standards i didn't have any responsibility but in reality that held no water because i i knew that i made choices i knew that i chose to participate in something that i knew that fundamentally i i knew right down to the core of it that was a bad situation and so i needed to accept responsibility for that part participation and so you know what's really fascinating caleb this process moving from acceptance to denial um we might never do it we might carry on our whole career and just say yeah you know the mountains are dangerous and these things happen but what we do when we do that is we forfeit we forfeit really important learning that the next generate that we owe to the next generation um and there's other aspects from moving from denial to acceptance you know i think that um early on i was denying connecting with the family members that lost lost people lost you know sons and daughters and brothers um i denied connecting my i i denied connecting with them and and i needed to engage with that and i needed to accept my responsibility to kind of go through the community and 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 engage and and so what i did was i went on a journey and and um i gave people my book now i know that that book sits on some of some some of these family shelves and it's never going to be opened and that's okay that's totally okay but here's the thing is they have the option they have some information if they want it and i think that as a community that's our responsibility um we we owe it to families we owe it to ourselves we owe it, owe it to the next generation to to engage with the errors that we made and and to be transparent about them so that so that we learn so that we learn um and grow the, and grow and develop and become you know me it was a this whole experience was a um a rite of passage from being a boy i was 38 years old and i was behaving like a boy and and i don't behave like a boy anymore 
Um, and, and that's, that's really important. That's really important. It was critical for me. Um, and, and I think it's a critical invitation too. like, how do we level ourselves up so that we're, we're, we're engaging at a higher level. We all have to live with the consequence. And so since we all have to live with a level playing field of consequence, we need to engage wholeheartedly our whole being into this game and, and not deny ourselves and our own better knowing just because somebody has more experience. Um, yeah, that piece is really important. Like accepting that, you know what? I might be junior here, but I might actually have the piece of information that unlocks this this situation and and turns it from disaster into, you know, everybody gets home at the end of the day. And and any senior guide worth their salt knows that to be true. Right? Any senior guide worth their salt fundamentally is really interested in listening and listening to everybody. Even the even even if a client is un, uncomfortable, right? And and what's challenging is that yes, we're trying to push through, you know, fear and uncertainty, but we're not we're not supposed to push through intuition and learning to recognize the difference between an emotion that we're meant to push through and an intuition that we're meant to listen to. I think that that's, that's a really important um, piece of ourselves that we need to move through denial and in, in, into accepting. Another one of these steps is to move from intellectual to intuition, right? Maybe I'm getting the... Yeah and there. yeah and 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 the intellect is a really kind of it's a really powerful you know tool right and and but intellectualizing that's something different that's that's convincing ourselves that something that's really bad is okay and and that's that's something that I think is really human but intuition intuition is a really just the word is re- really something that is different than most of our experience we live in a in you know fundamentally like if i look at the avalanche industry we're very newtonian in our approach like we really kind of want to weigh and measure and 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 look at things you know kind of in kind of a, a concrete way and that's that's really important but but there's another kind of physics that's involved in in this whole whole game we're playing and and that's quantum and and that's a whole other conversation but but there's intuition kind of a true intuition follows kind of the more quantum thinking in that there's we're part of a universe that has intelligence and that intelligence communicates to us important information all the time 
It's kind of a collective consciousness. Carl Jung might call it that. Actually, his language for his day was um, the the unconscious, meaning kind of something below the surface, be- below our kind of intellectual understanding. But it's it's kind of like this universal consciousness that we have opportunity to connect in, and 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 it's you know kind of we we talk about quantum entanglement so things that are connected are always connected so that's the mother that wakes up in the middle of the night when her kids in trouble there that's 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 the quantum kind of thing quantum part of the conversation and and the mountains are trying to communicate on, with us on this level like when i you know think about the the experience of moving up we're skinning up the slope of la traviata and and the mountain was really clearly telling me this is a bad idea right and 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 many people have said to me you know that's hindsight bias you didn't really have that information um (laughs) no (laughs) it was real (laughs) and and you know and i know it was real because it was it was present in other clients. Vern behind me said, I don't like this situation. I don't like being below the other group. And that was his, that was his ability, his way of communicating intellectually what he was experiencing, you know, kind of, um, uh, on an intuitive level. And I actually don't believe that intuition is something that senior guides have more of. I think that, I think that if people are practicing paying attention to listening, listening to something that's bigger, is there an invitation today? Or is is it clearly not an invitation to be here now? Just simply asking that question, is there an invitation? Are we being invited by the terrain? So what happens if... if guides have that feeling and they go against their intuition or their internal compass and and nothing bad happens everything turns out okay because that happens too right well i think what's happening there this is my opinion about what's happening there is that maybe something scares us and and we haven't discerned the difference between fear and intuition Mm. Maybe something scares us and, and we actually move through the fear. And, 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 and since we move and, and we move through the fear. So being able to discern the difference between a fear and an intuition is really different and is really important. And I'll, I'll, I'll share with, with your listeners and you and your listeners um, what I've discerned on that front. If, if we're dealing with fear, if we're dealing with an emotion, then our strategies for mitigating the hazard actually make us feel better. Like we have a conversation about how we're going to manage the situation and we feel better. And so then we do it and it all works out. Whereas with an intuition, the conversation about how we're going to manage the hazard makes us actually feel worse we we feel like we're being pigeonholed into something that we shouldn't be doing and and so there's a tool that we can use 
for understanding the difference between fear and intuition. In the adventure context, we want to work through our fears. It's that's that's why we're there. We're we're there to become courageous individuals. Um, but we also we also want to be sensitive into individuals and be able to discern the difference between fear and intuition. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And um, it seems like communication is key there, right? (laughs) Whether you're feeling fear or intuition, you need to work through it. And sometimes that's at least personally for me, that's not best done in my own head, but through top talking to my fellow guides or, or my guests about it, you know, having a conversation, stopping and slowing down. And that's the action that I think can be taken to maybe divert a runaway train. Exactly. And having the courage to say, this situation is scaring me right now. And and what that is, is that's an invitation to have a conversation. Oh, why is it scaring you? Well, you know, like there's, there's, you know, this and this that's, that's troubling me. And if there's a solution to this and this, and you feel better in the, in the engagement of the conversation, then, then you're dealing with a fear that, you've 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 used your fear to identify the hazard and then you go through a process of mitigating the hazard and then you're able to go into the situation with more confidence whereas if it's an intuition and you have a com- I'm, you know there's something coming up for me and and it this scares me and and um and there's no solution that makes you feel better then you choose plan B or C. (laughs) And so, you know, sort of my call to the culture that we live in and in forecasting and mountain guiding, and maybe I'm alone in this feeling, but uh, I'll say it anyways. I, I feel like there's this responsibility that I put on myself and I expect from my coworkers that we're supposed to know. We're supposed to know whether that's safe or not, or at least recognize the gray line of uncertainty in that. And it's our responsibility to say we might not know. And we need to dive a little bit deeper into that. And we need to accept that from other people that we're working with or we're traveling in the mountains with. And we need to be able to be vulnerable and let other people be vulnerable to those uncertainties and the and the not knowing. Yes. And and when there's a huge amount of uncertainty that we can't we can't rectify in some way, then it's time to kind of reduce our exposure some of the best feelings i've had in the mountains are are listening to that and just dialing back terrain and and going and skiing uh you know a, a low angle meadow where you can actually just enjoy the experience and and not be afraid of 
that uncertainty, right? We have the tools to just be able to dial it back, but we put the pressures on ourselves, especially when guiding other people, of thinking that we know what they want. True story. And if we don't have that conversation with those people, we might not know what they want. And I know for myself, I, I'm afraid that I'm not going to deliver my perception of what their want is. Yeah, and there's a, there's a huge opportunity to be educative, not only for ourselves, but our clients, in that, you know, it's, it, it is very kind of adolescent to have expectations and pout, and pout when we don't get them. Mm. <laughs> and, and, but it's also very mature. The opportunity is to, it's very mature to, to be able to be grateful for what we have. And how, however humble that is. And, and if we can make that shift, like that shift is, is a really important shift um, to be able to make that helps manage safety. Just that, that ability to, to maybe, maybe move from the hubris of, I must have this, this must be the perfect experience that the one that I have in my mind and be able to shift from that to just the joy of being in the mountains. And that's the lesson from Icarus, right? Like Icarus had to get, had to, you know, get as close to the sun as possible. Otherwise he wasn't going to, you know, be happy with you know, these incredible wings that he, his father gave him. And, and he tipped, tipped over into the, into, into tragedy. You know, the story of Icarus, he has these wings and his father gives them to him and he's flying. And his father said, don't fly close to the, too close to the sun. You'll melt the wax. He flies too close to the sun, melts the wax, the feathers fall off the wings and he falls to his death. And, and it's, and it's a story about hubris versus grace. And it's, that's one of the other kind of tools that I, I help in, in, in instruct my clients in, in, in managing hazards is shifting from hubris to grace. Grace is, is gratitude. Grace is, um, yeah, just being able to celebrate what we have. And that's, if, if that isn't the less, one of the key lessons from the mountains, right? Like we, we do what we can based on the conditions. And it used to be that, you know, clients would come to the Canadian Rockies by train in, you know, the early 1900s and they would have the whole summer they'd hire a guide for the whole summer and they'd get you know you know probably five or six peaks for a whole summer and that meant that they were working in the with the conditions and 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 for the first hundred years of guiding in canada there were no fatalities and so we have to ask it's important to ask ourselves what's what has changed and and i think that i think that our expectations have changed 
we we look more upon our mountain experiences as um, I've purchased this and therefore I will get it. Or my clients have purchased the summit when really what they're purchasing is your ability to not know the answer, but find the answer. And the answer might be, we need to scale back. They're paying you for your expertise in, in finding the answer. Yes. There's there's It seems that there's a bit of a loss of patience there in, in today's society. I mean, it's a fast paced society and, and, and another very adolescent aspect of being in the mountains is, is wanting, wanting the goal, wanting that Instagram shot, you know, like stacking up to what other, what you think other people are doing based on one snapshot of, of an experience, right? You know, so much has, has been placed on kind of the achievement and and the question that I think that we need to ask ourselves as adventurers is, am I going to sell my soul for that achievement? And and hopefully the answer is no, right? Like, no, I'm not, I'm not going to sell my soul. Right. And that's that's elevating, that's elevating ourselves. Right. Like if you think about the hazards in our society, like the bad things that happen, like I, I, you know, I'll pick out the, I'll pick on Boeing and the 737 Max 8. They kind of, they kind of sold their soul for kind of shareholder kind of, you know, kind of gifts. Right. Like, and, and because they sold their soul, they, they, they sold their, their long standing reputation. The, the the phrase used to be if it ain't Boeing I ain't going, right? And now you might be able to flip that <laughs> if it's Boeing I ain't going. Um, and and they had to be. What's interesting is that they had to be slapped twice, right? Like they knew after the first crash in Indonesia. You know, it's and it's not about. It's not about getting it right all the time. It's about making it right. Like one of the best stories of making it right comes from the Apollo program. Like back in the 1960s, they were NASA was screwing up. Like they fully expanded massively to to embark on this Apollo program for getting to the moon. And there was all kinds of problems with the the technology and they they really screwed up they weren't listening to their astronauts like gus grissom hung a lemon on on the um on the command module right and he was trying to say this stuff is junk and and i don't want to be part of this but he he lacked the he lacked the something to actually say that, right? He kind of within the culture of the time, it was okay to joke, but not to kind of like say, "No, I'm not participating." Mm-hmm. And they screwed up, and the Apollo One fire, Gus Grissom, um, Roger Chaffee, and Ed White were burned to death 
inside the capsule. And what's really fascinating is that NASA went through the deconstruction process right then and there. They took it all apart. But they, they not only took the technology apart and learned everything they could, they went through a process of learning how to engage it, how to, how to better understand the human factors. And that process included Apollo 7. Apollo 7, they decided to launch when they had easterly winds. And what that meant is that if there was an, if there was an error or an epic, that the capsule would then land on land. And the crew were pissed off and they mutinied and they were pissed off the whole mission as they're orbiting the earth. And then they said, they all, they all got sick and they had colds and they, they said, we're not going to wear our helmets on, on re-entry. And none of them wore their helmets on re-entry because they all had these, this congestion and they wanted to be able to clear their sinuses. And, but because they mutinied, they, they never flew again. But NASA went through a process of seeing that. Why are these, why are these astronauts mutinying? And I believe it was linked to, well, you're still not listening to your astronauts. You're still not caring about us. So with Apollo 8, the head of NASA sat down with Frank Borman, Jim Lovell, and Bill Landers. And he said to them, on a, on a, with on having a dinner with them a couple of nights before the launch. And Apollo 8, if you remember, that's the first time they left Earth's orbit and they went and they orbited around the moon. So it was a big deal and they only had one engine. They didn't have a, a, a lunar lando, lander as a, to use as a lifeboat to get home. And he sat down with them, the leader of NASA, and he said, if you, for any reason, you want to scrub, scrub. And we'll get you the first seat available on the next mission. And there's deep wisdom in that. Because the astronauts who are in the arena now have a choice. They may never exercise that choice, but the wisdom in that lesson is, is of critical importance. Is if, if you're a lead guide, give your people a choice. Yeah, that's, that's pretty powerful. That's a powerful lesson. And we all want, we all want the choice, right? Mm -hmm. Nobody likes being backed into a corner. No, no. And it's, and it's ours to take. Mm. it's our choice to make on our own too and and i'm you know i'm i'm saying this from the position of you really don't want to re you don't want to have to experience what i have there's a way through but you can avoid it and I think I think what I like about digging into the human risk management process is that it's pretty scalable, right? Like this is this is stuff just for development as a human being and being a better person. It's it's stuff for um, 
developing more resiliency in the face of uncertainty. And it's also something that can be used as a process post-traumatic incident. Absolutely. Yeah. And the, the, the archetype is, is this, you know, denial, moving from denial to acceptance. It's actually moving from the addict to the alchemist. Right? Like, Many of us would be self-described addicts. I'm, I'm addicted to adventure. Many of us would describe ourselves as that. But the invitation is, well, I'm actually not going to be an addict anymore. I'm going to be an alchemist. And that's where the archetypes come in. Is So what's the archetype of denial? Well, the addict denies. But what's the archetype of acceptance? That's the alchemist. I'm gonna I'm gonna let this change me. And that's that's wisdom that comes from um, um, Viktor Frankl. He survived the concentration camps, and and he wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. And that was his wisdom that came out of surviving the concentration camps. He said. I always, the only thing that the Germans couldn't take from me was how I chose to respond. So he was an alchemist. When we level up to the alchemist and when we're accepting, we're stepping into our own power. So can you do a bit less of what we might say is, is traditional mountain guiding these days, but, um, it seems like you've found your calling in in your new ventures. Mm -hmm. um, can you tell us a little bit more about some of the things you're doing and the people that you're working with and and some of the things that Archetypal does? Yeah, you know, I, I, I work with um, people in all kinds of risk environments that are interested in, that have connected with the idea that Okay, so one of the one of the keys to managing risk is to elevating how we're showing up. So adventurers and people who work in risk environments across the board. So they might be loggers, they might be um, um, doctors. What's happening, um, Caleb, is that I'm getting adventurers taking my my course, but they also work in medicine, and they also work in other industries. Um, First responders, super helpful for first responders who are managing risk all the time. Um, and, and, and one of the reasons why I shifted out of guiding was as a guide, I'm still, I, there's still the potential that I could have a fatality. And the big detractor for me was how, how our society responds post-incident isn't at a place that I want to expose myself to. Um, for me, that was the biggest risk. And, and I'm, I'm amazed I survived. Right? Like, I'm really amazed I survived the hazard of, that was of how we respond to catastrophic um, fatal events. And, and those hazards are real. 
um, we see them in our in our community. Yeah, you know, I, I I hope for I hope for change, right? Like I hope that we we change how we respond, and that we respond in community, and and we respond with humility, and we respond with courage, and we respond with connection, and we respond with grace. What I'm realizing is that um, these pieces need kind of chewing on and digesting, you know. And so, yeah, you know, I'm just, I'm going to offer them in segments um, and really kind of explore this idea of denial versus acceptance and really explore this idea of being faint-hearted and versus courageous. I think the assumption that we make is that we show up as being courageous. And, and I, and I think that, Upon reflection, most of us would realize, no, a lot of times I show up not wanting to say what I really need to say. I am really value you, Caleb, and the opportunity to have this discussion with you. Well, thank you, Ken. And and, um, yeah, I've... (laughs) probably learn more about myself just in the in our couple conversations than I had expected to um and I'm looking forward to putting down some work to work, work through some of this myself and and it's much needed um so I appreciate your ability to hold that space for me and and um I look forward to diving in deeper, hopefully on my own and hopefully with you in the future. Thanks, Caleb. Yeah. Well, thanks for making the time to come on and and share some of your experiences and some of your your thoughts on how to move through traumatic experiences. And and, and I, I really can't say enough about how I appreciate your book and how it's helped me. And um, I hope everybody else checks that out as well. And I hope you've, I hope all the listeners have appreciated this conversation. Thank you. Yeah, the last thing I'll say about the book is I was guided. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it wasn't something that I wanted to do at all. I was guided there, and 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 I feel grateful for for that whole process. I feel grateful that I had the resources and, and yeah. So, um, thank you for your support. Of course. All right, Ken, we'll talk soon. Talk soon. Thanks for tuning in to the avalanche hour podcast. We hope you enjoyed that conversation with Ken. Music on today's episode featured two tracks called Mistakes Are For Learning and Flicks by Ketza. You can find more tracks by Ketza on their website, ketza.uk. Our artwork was created by Mike T. You know man T. You can check out more of his work at MikeT.com. If you enjoy the show, tell a friend about it. And please take the time to write us a review on Apple Podcasts. We love getting that feedback. 
you have feedback, comments, or want to engage further, please send us an email to the Avalanche Hour Podcast at gmail.com. Our format this season will be much the same as in years past. We'll release episodes on the 1st and the 15th of every month with some additional episodes sprinkled in where we can. We'll be including an opportunity for listeners to engage and ask questions of our guests through Instagram. We'll put out an Instagram story or post before our interviews, and you can submit your questions there. Then we'll try and work them into the conversations. If you aren't already, please follow us on Instagram and Facebook. We are at the Avalanche Hour Podcast. This podcast wouldn't exist without the support of you, our listeners. So thank you. If you want to contribute more, we have a donate link on our website, www.theavalanchehour.com. You'll be joining folks like Edmund Porter and Angela Stopp, who help sustain our operations through monthly donations. Thanks for considering a donation. Tune in on the 15th of October for another great episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast. And until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, and always have fun. 